0: I'm so happy to see you all and to be here tonight. I have had to miss the last couple weeks of church. Um, We just had like a lot of sickness in our house and it's been super lame. So I'm really happy to be here. Um, We're going to dive into the book of Matthew tonight. I'm excited about the passage that we get a look at. Um, But before we do, I want you to just take a moment and think about something. Think about a time when you got into just like a stupid argument. Like it could be with one of your roommates or your spouse or a child, like Maybe it was one of those arguments where you're arguing about like, taking out the trash, but it's not really about the trash. Like you're kind of just circling the drain about something on the surface, but there's always like, a thing beneath the thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? But it's whatever that thing is that's like, the immediate pressing thing. Okay, now like, stay in that moment and think about, have you ever been in an argument where it like, escalates and escalates and escalates, and then one of you tries to make like the zinger? Like the final blow, a lame, like a comeback that maybe is supposed to be intense, but you're like, yeah, well, you don't even tie your shoes right or something like that. Like just lame. Um, our son, Jack, had this line that he used for a good while when he was three. He's four now. And he, he picked up this line in a random Disney movie called The Good Dinosaur. You ever seen it? It's kind of obscure. But he, I don't know, kids just like try things out, like maybe this will work. So when him and our oldest daughter, Nora, would get in fights, it would build and build and build and then Jack would finally just say, you're such a coward. And he would say it just like that, like kind of scrunch up his face and just like that. And I would, it happened so often you guys, like it never sounded right coming from like the cutest little three-year-old boy's mouth and he would say, you're such a coward. And so, like, I would hear them fighting in the backyard and they would yell and yell. And then I would just hear Nora say, Mom, Jack, call me a coward. And lean out the door and be like, don't call Nora a coward. It just happened so much, he didn't even know what a coward was. Even yesterday, they were, like, bickering. And one of them, again, like, as their final zinger was like, you don't even like unicorns. And Michael and I were like, good one. Like, you, good one, you showed them. And the, why I bring all that up is because tonight's passage is kind of begins in that moment, where some people are doing, once again, what they think is like the final zinger in an argument with Jesus. You've probably, if you've been around our series in Matthew or you know anything about the book of Matthew, there's this group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. And the Gospels is like one giant push-pull argument, argument between Jesus and them, where every time they come up to him, they're like, okay, this is the one. We're gonna finally outwit him, outsmart him. It's their version of, you're such a coward. But every, it never works. They don't know this yet, but they'll never, ever be able to outsmart Jesus, and so that's where our passage opens tonight. So if you have a Bible or a phone with an app, you can open to Matthew 15. We've got 20 verses to cover, which is a decent amount. So I'm gonna just go ahead and read the whole passage that we know what we're working with and then we will come back and kind of um, look at it together and see what Jesus was saying to them and what he might be saying to us. So Matthew 15, one. Then Jesus was approached by Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem who asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, why do you break God's commandments because of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and your mother and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, whoever tells his father or mother whatever benefit you have received from me is a gift committed to the temple. He does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Summoning the crowd, he told them, listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came up and told him, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He replied, every plant that my heavenly father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. Then Peter said, explain this parable to us. Do you still lack understanding, he asked. Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. These are the things that defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. Okay, so there you go. So we're going to Go back to verse 1, and what we know right off the bat is that the Pharisees and the scribes come from Jerusalem and approach Jesus. The thing is that Jesus is not in Jerusalem at the time. He is ministering in the Galilee area right now, which is a little bit north of Jerusalem. It would have been kind of a far journey on foot or by camel or donkey or what have you. Um, And so up until this point in Matthew, Jesus has been doing miracles, healings, feeding the 5,000, claiming to forgive sins. The Pharisees don't like any of it. He's drawing large crowds and the Pharisees were positioned to be the spiritual authority. And Jesus is suddenly this new guy preaching about a kingdom that sounds totally contrary to everything that they've told people and they don't like it. So they've likely made a special trip to Jerusalem to tell Jesus, we don't like what you're doing. But rather than just accusing Jesus straight away, they come in with a question. Not even a question for him, a question about his disciples. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? So it looks like they're really accusing Jesus's disciples, but the thing is, any followers of any rabbi or teacher at the time would have done what their teacher taught them to do. So it's kind of like this sneaky, backhanded way of accusing Jesus himself. In the same way that if someone saw my kids running wild and being loud after church, which is not at all uncommon, by the way, and they said, why are your kids so loud? Why are your kids so crazy? Why does Jack never have shoes on? The silent implication is like, why can't you do something about them? Doesn't always reflect on me as a mother, but often, So they come after his disciples. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why haven't you taught them better? And what is the tradition of the elders? That's kind of interesting verbiage. So tradition of the elders, that phrase really just was a technical expression to refer to interpretations of scripture that had been made for centuries by past esteemed rabbis and teachers and then passed down orally generation to generation. And what happened, was that these interpretations of scripture probably started out as a really good thing. Probably trying to help Israelites learn how to follow Jesus in really, or how to follow, Jesus was not on the scene, he was only a prophecy at the time. Learn how to be righteous and follow God in really specific ways. But it turned into this huge thing that went way beyond the original Mosaic law or the words of the Old Testament. And it became like they were almost like putting up fences around the laws to try to make it all extra specific so they could follow it extra good. And there were so many details and so many little tedious things that they had to do that by the time Jesus comes on the scene, this whole volume, these traditions, would have been super overwhelming to just know and keep track of, let alone obey. So, They couldn't understand why Jesus being a teacher wouldn't have taken these traditions more seriously. And then they asked this question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. Which again, to us sounds kind of like, yeah, that's gross, like we get it, there's a pandemic, you wash your hands, but it sounds as like little as like, so-and-so picks their nose, like, they don't wash their hands, you're like, yeah, ew, gross, okay, but why such a big deal? It was a big deal at the time because hand washing was really, really important. There was a lot of dust, there was a lot of heat, there was a lot of contact with animals, Um, there was no modern plumbing, there were no bottles of soap, no one had hand sanitizer in their pocket and in their car and in their backpack. So they needed to wash their hands before they ate, but again, this thing that began as a simple act to help your personal hygiene, the Pharisees took it and made it about ceremonial cleanliness. And so their belief was, if you have unclean stuff on your hands, if you went and fed your donkey or did whatever you do, and then you eat and something physically unclean goes into your body, it makes your whole self spiritually unclean. And that was originally expected of priests. Like when they went to minister in the temple, they had to wash their hands, wash their feet, but it suddenly got extended to all people. And they had this really intense purification ritual that they had to do that involved like, pour a pitcher of water on your hands with your hands up so that when the water runs off, the uncleanness falls downward. And then you had to do it to the other hand, and then you had to do it with your hand the other way, and it was so specific. So word gets back to the Pharisees, Jesus' disciples don't do this. And so they know Jesus probably doesn't do this either. How are they getting away with not washing their hands before they eat? But then Jesus, wise wonderful Jesus answers them with not an answer, but a question, with all the wisdom that he ever does in Matthew 15, three, and when they say, why do your disciples break the tradition, he comes back with, why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? So the Pharisees elevate human tradition and Jesus immediately flips the whole thing on his head and shows them fast that God's commandments are of higher priority than human tradition. So he accuses them, why are you breaking God's commandments because of your human man-made laws? And he goes on to give a specific example. He cites Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 where it says, honor your father and your mother and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death but you say whoever tells his father or mother whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple. He does not have to honor his father. Okay, pause right there. What is the deal with this and temples and mothers and fathers? We understand in modern day America that it is important to honor your mother and your your father. Um, And we've talked about this a little bit, Michael's talked about this in in some sermons, the difference between what we would call a strong group society and a weak group society. So in America, the ultimate goal for an 18 year old is to graduate high school, move out of their parents' house, follow their heart, get a job and find their own way. That's like the direction and that's kind of mutually agreed upon. In the ancient Middle Eastern culture and still many cultures today that are different than ours, It's called a strong group society, and you identified with your family. That was like the most important thing about you was whose family are you in? If your dad was a carpenter, you became a carpenter. If your dad made shoes, you needed to make shoes, and you often lived with your parents. You had these multi-generational families in homes together like their whole life. It was not respected to leave and like follow your heart. That was not a thing. And so part of that was this expectation that one of the ways you would honor your father and your mother would be to take care of them financially in their old age, that you would give them money, you would give them gifts, and to take care of them. So Jesus brings up this example and says, you've heard honor your father and your mother, but what you're doing is saying, listen, I had this gift, I was gonna give it to my mom and dad, but instead, I'm gonna give it to the temple. It's a, it was a specific, a specific gift that you could dedicate to the Lord and once you did that, nothing else could be done with that thing. The word for that type of gift is the same word for Corbin, like Corbin University, if any Corbin students? Um, you know there was like Corbin, a gift dedicated to God. That was like an actual type of gift that you would dedicate to God. It didn't come from the university. Like that idea is from scripture. And so the Pharisees were kind of like hiding behind this veil of piousness to circumvent these laws of like, okay, we're supposed to honor our mother and our father, but what we would like to do instead is just give this money to the temple um, and then it's really just them deciding what to do with it instead of what was asked or expected as a way of honoring their parents. Again, kind of an interesting, unique thing, but when Jesus confronts them about it, he's really just saying, listen, the written word of God is higher authority than the tradition of man. When humans try to make their traditions legally binding, they essentially make the word of God empty of its intended authority. So if you go to verse seven, Jesus then calls them hypocrites and says, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said this, and he refers to this old prophecy, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Like they're just doing it for appearances. They look like they're doing the right thing, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. I wanna kinda of camp, out, camp out on that concept of teaching as doctrines human commands. Taking things that are maybe like the root of them is in scripture, but they're not explicit in scripture, but we make them like a doctrine. So let me give you a few examples. Um, these ones are for a little, from a little bit longer ago, but rewind like 50 years when people went to church. It was like culturally expected that if you were going to church, you were wearing a dress or a skirt and your nicest shoes if you were a girl. If you were a man, slacks, a button up, a suit, even like little boys would wear suits to church sometime if they had one. And if someone showed up to church in jeans and a sweatshirt, it was like, what are they doing? Like, even if someone didn't usually go to church, they knew that to go to church, you needed to wear certain things. And then the seeker movement happened in the 80s and the 90s and the whole come as you are. So people started feeling feeling more free to show up as they were. And then you have us in 2022, like casual Sunday every Sunday. Like, people did not go to church in sneakers and sweatshirts 50 years ago. But that was a thing that just became like mutually uh, agreed upon. Or... This is kind of a specific one, but I went to a camp when I was younger and there was a lot of different denominations represented and my parents were leading worship at it and some people were really offended that they chose to use drums in their worship band because there was a time when there was some Christians who thought you shouldn't use drums. Rock and roll uses drums and rock and roll is sinful. How can you use that type of music? How could you even make it sound like that if you're claiming that it's worship to God? They didn't understand and they were upset at my parents. And my parents are kind of rebellious if they know them, so they were like, we're going to do it anyways. <laughs> Just kidding, they're not. But they, I'm sure my dad said something really wise to them about why they were going to continue to use drums, but they still use drums. Um, or there was a time when it was really common for a youth group camp to end with a speaker or the pastor saying that what you need to do is you need to go smash all of your CDs. CDs. Do you know what a CD is, you guys? Do you remember those? Smash all your CDs break your Nintendo 64 because you cannot listen to secular music. There's no way that that can be good for you. You should only listen to Christian music. That's not in scripture. Just like a really specific like, if you're 15, you should go smash all your CDs. It can't be good for you. Or the purity movement of the 1990s and the early 2000s. This is what I grew up in and there was a lot of really good things about it, but there was a popular book that I read called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. It was all about how you should just not ever date dating was bad, or that you shouldn't kiss anyone till you got married. Like all these things that had good intentions and good roots, but they got like uh, extended to everyone in a way that became kind of legalistic, and those specific things weren't found in scripture. Let's bring it a little closer to home. Think about some things right now, like the way Christians choose to handle alcohol. All we know in scripture is that we're said, Jesus says don't get drunk. And beyond that, there's a lot of gray. And there are some believers who would say, Christians should never, ever drink. There's no place for it. Pastors should never drink. And then there are other people that are like, what are you talking about? Had six beers with dinner, I'm good. No big deal, I personally didn't. I haven't had dinner. Also, I've never had a whole beer in my life. I just don't like it. And within that, like accusing the other of like, how could you think that? Why would you think that? Or the way someone chooses to vote? I don't know if you guys remember, but there was this election in 2020 that got a little heated. (laughs) And it was like truly, truly, you know, specifically in the church, how can you claim to love Jesus and vote for that Republican? Do you know about him? Do you know what he stands for? Do you know what he's done? How can you love Jesus and vote for that Democrat? Do you understand some of the things he stands for? And we put spiritual language around it. And we use it as a metric and a way to judge other believers. And it got really divisive. Or what someone believes about masks. The Bible doesn't say anything about masks. But do you know how much uh, language has started to come up in the church about, like, if you really loved your neighbor you you'll wear a mask. If you really love your neighbor, then you will not mandate their medical choices. You'll let them choose. That stuff isn't in the Bible. And thankfully Valley has not had a ton of controversy surrounding all of that, but you guys Michael and I know pastors and friends who have had like tons of people leave their churches over this stuff. Like elders and their dear friends leaving because of whatever that church made their policy. That's so sad. That's making things that are just human traditions or human opinions or a medical issue. Hand washing was a personal hygiene thing, and they turned it into more. It should make us think about what's actually from scripture and what is just man made tradition. And the point is not that we should never, ever create safeguards for ourselves or extra boundaries around certain things. Some of us should pay extra careful attention about what we do with alcohol or what we watch or what we listen to or what we eat, who we spend our time with, how we date. Boundaries and those extra measures can be a really good thing. But the point is not to let them become, um, not to get stuck in thinking that those things are ever what's going to solve the issues of our heart. It's just more rules and more safeguards. So let's pick up in verse 10. Summoning the crowd, Jesus tells them, listen and understand, pay attention. So likely a crowd has gathered by this point. He was talking to the Pharisees and now he turns his attention and creates this teaching moment. Probably because so many people have listened to the Pharisees and he's like, they're missing the point. Let me tell you the actual point. Wants to correct their line of thinking. Listen and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came up and told him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? I just feel like Jesus would have been like, No, duh, that was the point. I was trying to offend them. He replied, Every plant that my heavenly father didn't plant will be uprooted. Oh, I lost my spot. Leave them alone they are blind guides. He calls them blind guides. I've never used that as an insult for someone. (laughs) Maybe I'll tell it to Jack and he could use it. Um, But again, they were the spiritual authority. People were looking at them for how to be a good Israelite, how to follow God. And Jesus is like, no, actually, they're a blind guide. And he goes on to say, if the blind guide the, the blind, they will both fall into the pit. You're both headed for destruction unless you pay attention. Then Peter said, explain this parable to us. I imagine Jesus being kind of frustrated at this point. Do you still lack understanding, he said? Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? He's talking about poop. But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. Okay, Have you guys ever eaten something and, like, realized you got a hair in your mouth? Like, probably if you're a girl, you know your hair gets stuck right here and you're like, gross. Even worse is if you're at a restaurant and you find a hair in your food and you're like, oh my gosh, for sure can never eat here again. Let me tell you about something that happened to me that was even worse. This is a pretty gross story. Um, We were coming home from Disneyland last month and we were flying out of the Orange County Airport, we were coming back to Portland, we were in line at the boarding gate, like waiting to get on the plane. I had some Starbucks, iced coffee, it was great. And I took a drink and I felt a hair in my mouth and so I did what you always do, which is kind of like try to (laughs) brush it away. And as I brushed it, I realized it wasn't going away and it was like already in my mouth and I was like, ugh, gross. But then nothing could have prepared me for what was about to happen next. As I started trying to get it out, I started pulling. And I kept pulling. Like a magician that pulls a sword out of their throat. And like usually you would do this like in private, like, oh, excuse me, like pull it out of your throat. But I was like in the middle of the airport, and Michael and my mother in law Lori were watching this and we're like, oh. and I just kept pulling, like fighting my own gag reflex, and it was this hair that looked so much darker than mine, you guys. Like I have some dark hairs, my natural color is brown. Um, but I was like oh my gosh, and Michael said, did you pull that out of your soul? (laughs) I was like, yes. It was so gross, and every time I thought about it, like, you know when you think about something and you feel like your gag reflex is triggered just thinking about it? It was so gross, and I still don't know, like, where it came from or if it was mine, but it was not right. And, (laughs) I mean, take the leap with me back to the scriptures. But Jesus is trying to help us understand, like, listen, you can wash your hands all you want, but you still pull the nasty hair out of your throat. You can't make this any better. You can't sugarcoat it. You can't make it less gross. You are defiled by this gross hair coming out of your throat. And he said, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander, super fun list. Mark, in his gospel, adds to this list greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, pride, and foolishness. Matthew's showing us here how Jesus brings back the conversation full circle. Back to cleanliness. These are the things that defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. He goes back to the original subject of conversation. The Pharisees could fool everyone, even themselves, but Jesus saw right through it. Why? Because our hearts as humans naturally bend away from the things of God. And they bend naturally toward selfishness and self-righteousness. Michael Wilkins, um, one commentator, says this. The implication is that the spiritual heart is naturally evil and needs the righteousness that Jesus has initiated with the arrival of the kingdom of God. This is an explicit statement about the heart that was implied in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament revelation about God's will for his people and to bring about the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven in those who respond to his message. That righteousness is an inside-out transformation that begins with the heart and works throughout the process of the disciple's life to produce external righteousness while pursuing the perfection of the Father. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-six through 27, God says to his people, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone I will move from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So many people were trying to do life according to God's ways as this outside-in kind of thing. The goal was to look like a godly Israelite. How many believers, many of us included today, are just playing this game of just trying to look like a good Christian. How many people are avoiding church or the body of Christ altogether because they feel like they just haven't quite gotten it together or they haven't stopped sinning yet and when they can figure it out, then they'll feel like they can go back. And Jesus came to say that we just have it backwards. It's not an outside in thing, it's an inside out thing. I really believe that all of us at some point, at varying ages and stages of life, just have a moment or a season where we just come face to face with our own humanity and depravity. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, oh, this is me. And I feel like I'm old enough, beyond old enough to really know like me without the spirit of God inside of me, is just not that great. I'm easily angered. I'm impatient. I yell at my kids and lose it with them far more than I would like to admit. I'm selfish and I want my own way and it's such a painful thing to look in the mirror trying to get my kids to share all day and to not prefer their own way, but I'm exactly the same, except I'm not fighting over toys. It's other things that I want my way about. And I just know that Kristen Engelking without the spirit of Jesus inside her, it's just not, not that fun to be around. We are aware of our own sin and brokenness, and if we're not, Jesus says we're deceiving ourselves. It's there. And sure, the Pharisees took all these commands and added to them and made legalism the norm, and we can clearly see that when we look at them, like, oh, you sillies, it was not about hand washing. We just do it with other things. We do it with Christian culture. <laughs> like that is its own thing. And we forget that it's not coming to church that makes us more holy. It's not reading our Bible every day or every week that makes us in like better standing with Jesus. Like we were not in that grade of standing and then we can get in better standing if we just read our Bible. We forget that it's not about how good we pray when we're in front of other people. You guys know what I'm talking about, the pressure to pray good prayer, It's real. It's not about whether or not people see the way we worship. It's not about what we post on social media, about what we're learning or the book we're reading or the daily devotions that we had. It's not about what charities we give our money to or churches. It's not about whether we take a weekly Sabbath or whether or not we choose to observe the season of Lent coming up in a few weeks. Hear me say this, all of those things are good. You know that, I know that. Habits and rhythms and disciplines are good and right in the life of a believer. But sometimes we use these things to make us feel like we're washing our hands. You know what I mean? Or we flip them and use them as um, a standard to hold others against and a way to assess how good someone is or is not doing with Jesus by how many of these things are or are not on their list regularly. But when Jesus enters the picture, even the worst news about our hearts and all the things that are in there, it's not just what comes out of our mouth, it's what comes out of our whole self, our thoughts, our actions, our words. That's what we need to be cleansed from. But when Jesus enter the, enters the picture, the bad news about the reality of our hearts actually becomes really good news. So I just wanna close with a couple scripture passages. This one might be familiar to some of you, but it was so good for me to read it again. Um, it's Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's an intense pronouncement, dead. You ever tried to make someone who is dead look better? You can put nice clothes on them, you could comb their hair, you could put on makeup, but it does not ever make them undead. That reality still stands. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. Carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, swear it changes everything. But God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that. In the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. I've read this verse and known this verse for a long time, but one thing I think is so cool that I wanna point out is Paul is so clear to remind us that we're saved by grace. It's through faith. It is literally not anything that we can do. It is not by our works. Nobody can brag about it. No one can brag about being more saved than anyone else. The playing field is 1,000% leveled because of Jesus. But then what he goes on to say in verse 10 is that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, So right close together, you are not saved by your works, but you were created for good works. The the good works don't save us, it's the salvation that gives us any impetus, any power by the Spirit to do anything good. And we can't flip-flop those two things. Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. We get to participate with the Spirit in the good things that he has for us to do from a place of freedom, knowing that our salvation and our good standing with Jesus does not depend on them. Titus chapter three, verse three, says this. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly, not even just a little bit, not like a stingy spirit poured out, an abundant pour out of his spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone, but avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. I feel like you could have just read that passage to the Pharisees, but it wasn't written yet. Again... Notice, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Goes on in verse eight. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. We can never, ever do enough good works to be in right standing with Jesus. That's the point, We can never do enough. But because he did, we get to live a life of Holy Spirit-empowered good works. And I feel like I'm preaching to myself more than anyone because I like a measurable way to know that I'm doing good at something. Like, I want to do the right thing. I want to be good at things. I lean naturally towards Um, legalism and perfectionism is just kinda how I'm wired. Like yes, I lean towards sin, but this other layer of me just wants to do it right. Please tell me how to do it so that I know I am doing the right thing. And the thing is we can't win at following Jesus. This is the whole point, is that we could not possibly do it right. We could not possibly wash our hands enough to be better than the next person or to get in closer with Jesus The point is that our hearts need to be cleansed by him. So just close your eyes for a minute while the band comes back up. I just wanna give you a moment to consider a couple things. I have no personal way of knowing where any of this hits you tonight. I trust that the Holy Spirit does, that he knows exactly what you need, and it's not my job To say the right things to help whatever your heart needs tonight. I can't know that. So maybe tonight you just need to be freed up from the pressure to get everything right. Maybe you put pressure on yourself. Maybe you feel it from the church or from other people. And you just need to be freed up to not have to get everything right Maybe you're tempted to depend on your own self-righteousness or maybe you've started to notice that your own desire to do the right thing has actually turned into a really natural criticism of others. Maybe that's how it comes out is that you just find yourself noticing often what other people are not doing right. Who's washing their hands, who's not? And maybe you just need to be reminded tonight that Jesus will take care of them and you don't have to. Maybe you really understand the concept of not being saved by your good works. You feel like, I love that, I get it. Saved by grace, not by works. But maybe in that you've just become like a little passive or apathetic about following Jesus and have just forgotten that you have not been saved by your good works but you have been saved for good works. And Jesus has some abundance for you to walk in, and often that abundant life is unlocked by participation in what the Spirit wants to do in you, through you, unlocked by a desire to have a heart of obedience, to say, Jesus, what is it that you want for me? That's what I want. And maybe tonight you just needed the reminder that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you're not. Maybe you thought you have like a boring testimony whatever that means or you grew up in the church or you kind of always knew Jesus and you just need to remember tonight that you were dead in your trespasses and sins and then Jesus made you alive. Maybe life feels impossibly hard right now and maybe it's very truly difficult to find anything to be thankful for, anything to worship Jesus for and that becomes your baseline is if nothing else. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And Jesus, by his great mercy and kindness toward me, made me alive together with Christ. Jesus, we have so much to give you thanks for tonight. God, I pray for our church, that you would help by your spirit alone create a culture among this family of believers where we're not trying to play good Christianity. Where we're not trying to convince ourselves or anyone else that we have our life and our hearts together in a way that we really don't. I pray that we would be a family and a body of believers who feels free to confess and admit, you sin? Me too. But to not end there to turn and say, but God, in your kindness, in your mercy, in your generosity towards us, took us from there and set us apart. Help us to live in that identity, God, as your children, to walk in the good works, not because we're good at doing them, but because your spirit lives in us, and that matters. So we worship you freely and generously now, Jesus, to say thank you. We need you and we love you.